In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for allowing us this time, bringing us together, to share your holy word. We ask that you help us to truly understand some of the complex uh, events in this chapter of Exodus that we'll be covering today. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. No, 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 what are you doing? I'll get one, right? No. I'll play later on. No, this is this is a special group up here. Oh, oh sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Today we're going to be covering uh, some very interesting and the most important the most important events in the history of the Jewish people. This is something that they celebrate on a regular uh, basis every year, uh, about the same time that we celebrate Easter. And there is a reason for that. There is a connection for that, and which we will get into in, in a little while here. But uh, we're going to be covering four main topics. But Exodus is probably the most important and yet at the same time the most confusing of one of the books of the Old Testament, particularly uh, the Torah, that is the first five books. Is this coming? It does not follow any strict pattern of chronological order. And uh, why? Well, as we've said before, the Old Testament, particularly the uh, first five books, and to some degree the subsequent books, Joshua, Judges, etc., uh, were originally brought together by four different groups of uh, people at different times. And then they were edited more than once. But the final editing in about the fifth, the end of the sixth century, early part of the fifth century, is when they were really brought together by the priest Ezra. And that's when he wrote the book of Genesis uh, to give it some uh, beginning. And I think that Genesis is probably, even though we say that all of the books of the Bible are inspired by God, I think Genesis is the one that shows that inspiration more than anything else uh, because of the number of things that it mentions and how it describes God and his purpose. Uh, we've talked about this purpose of God's plan of salvation. Uh, I've had a few people question me on that. And, you know, they say, well, it's not in the Bible, God's plan of salvation. And I said, the Bible is God's plan of salvation written out for you. You have to just kind of hunt for it, you might say. But look at it this way. Whenever anyone attempts to build or create or write something of a great magnitude, they have to sit down and do some planning, do they not? They have to have a, an objective or a goal. 
and it's to be laid out. Most people who write uh, on a professional level uh, write out sort of a skeleton uh, of the subject that they want to uh, present in their writings. Well, God has done the same thing. He has a plan of salvation. Would it be reasonable for a divine God who knows everything not to have a plan and just sprinkle mankind out there and leave them on their own? No, there is a plan. But what he's done is he's turned it over in many ways to mere mortals, human beings, and we all have our biases and our quirks and our various problems so that when we come together, when these people in the Bible came together and wrote these things, they all had different ideas and different values as to how they looked at things. So when these four groups of people came together to write their histories at different periods of time, they may have ultimately uh, had the same ideas in mind, but they would voice it in a different way. Now, part of this whole plan, this session of our study of Judaism, is to show how many of the Jewish things came into Christianity, and we adopted those uh, with perhaps some minor changes. But what do we have in the New Testament in Christianity that is similar to that kind of origin of the Old Testament, that is, the four uh, various groups of people that brought us together. Anyone have an idea? What about the four Gospels? All right. The idea of the four Gospels, the idea of the four original sources of the Old Testament have really the same background. It is God bringing his message through four different groups of people from four different regions at different time periods in order to give the same plan, the same idea, the same message and instruction. Might be different ways, but it worked out. That's why we have four Gospels. If we only had one, I'm sure that you would have an awful lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, that was just written by so-and-so, and how do we know he, is, he or she is correct? But when you have four different Gospels coming from different men at different time periods for different reasons, all to present ultimately the same story, then you can pretty well rely on that story as being factual. All right? And that's what you have in the Old Testament with these four different groups of people coming together and then Ezra bringing them a little closer together in the book that we have today. All right? But you have the situation of Ezra, or, you know, I'm sure Ezra had some help, uh, saying, well, this from the north is a pretty good 
description of such and such event. Well, this from the South is just as good, I think, so they put them both in. Then you have the other problem of a certain uh, event being described, and then it leaves off and something else comes in, and then it goes back to the same event and a little more description. You have that today in the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments, which is the outward sign of God renewing the original covenant that he had made way back with Abraham, and now he's making it again with Moses. But it isn't just with Moses. It isn't just with Abraham. It is all the people that follow down through the ages. And Christ renewed that covenant in a different way, but it is signified by his death and resurrection and it wasn't meant just for the apostles. The gospels and the letters of Paul, etc. Uh, are not just meant for the people of that time. They're meant for everybody uh, down through the ages. So that's a little bit of a background into what I want to talk about today. The fact is that you cannot take the particularly the Old Testament, literally. You've got to be very careful on how you read it. And as we go through, we'll give you examples of that. I think I did uh, a little bit of that last week when I talked about the three uh, strangers or three angels or whatever it was that met up with Abraham out in the desert. And Abraham runs out and... Uh, begs them to come in because it's a somebody from a different area. It's a way of connecting with the outside world and hearing some different stories and having uh, visitors come that you haven't seen before, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so he rushes out and has Sarah, you know, uh, take three measures of flour and and uh, bake some wheat or bread, uh, as if you could do that in a few minutes. Uh, and then somebody else went out and killed the fatted calf and uh, cooked that and presented that as if you could do that in five or ten minutes. Those things are incidental. You have to understand how writing was brought together in various ages. And in ancient Judaism, ancient writing of any kind, chronological accuracy and accuracy to the point of facts was not always important to the overall story. And that doesn't mean that these books are not still inspired. And as I've always said before, even though we call the Bible the Word of God, what it really is saying is, yes, the Bible is the Word of God, but not the words of God. Alright? The Bible was written by human beings who were inspired by certain people, I mean, excuse me, who were inspired by God and they wrote what they understood God was inspiring them to write. Okay. So you have it in their words. Now, you've got to be careful about that 
I've had several people just today come up to me and ask for a clarification on certain things. And uh, the, actually the gist of almost all of these four or five questions was the same. You cannot take the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, word for word for accuracy. You've got to understand the message behind it and kind of go with that. I want to go into uh, the call of Abraham. Now, last week we left you, I think, with the fact that Joseph, who was the uh, son of Jacob, the second youngest son, there was another son afterwards, that was Benjamin, uh, Joseph was um, one of the key figures in the book of Genesis who sort of is a transitional person, you might say. He was the one that brought Jacob and his whole family to Egypt. And you wonder, well, why did God do that? Well, first of all, the means by which he did it was the famine in Israel. The famine was to the point where they could not feed their uh, livestock, which was, of course, the source of their income and livelihood. So they had to move it to some place where the livestock could graze properly and they could live off of that. And, of course, with the Nile overflowing on a regular basis, uh, the Nile Valley and its tributaries, etc., were always green and therefore, or almost always, because there is another area where there was a famine in Egypt as well. Uh, But for the most part, the Israelites, that is Jacob and his family, and we're talking about several people, not just the twelve, you know, the father and the twelve sons, but the two wives, the concubines, uh, the servants, the slaves, uh, you know, the herders and all of that, moved down there along with the flocks. Of course, they were welcomed because Joseph, who preceded them, and you all have read that story, I'm sure, uh, provided for them and made sure that the Pharaoh understood who they were and so forth and so on. And so they were given choice lands uh, for their flocks. Now, why was that? Well, God wanted these people to increase and multiply, but keep them together as a nation. It was important that they were kept together rather than scattering out as families will do when they begin to uh, multiply and, and grow up. They want their own uh, things as children do today. I have a son that's on the west coast, or rather east coast, and my daughter on the west coast. So, and here I am in the middle, or almost. Anyways, that's a common thing. But God wanted these people to stay together so that, because in order for him to build a nation out of them. And he did. They were originally welcomed as guests. They were originally treated very well. But over a period of years, now the Bible says 430 years, we have no way 
to be certain of that, but we do know it was a long period of time. Uh, and it does fit into some of the other things that uh, we do know. Um, but And that isn't really an important issue, although uh, it is one of those facts that are, appears to be in the Bible and people do take it literally, but you can't do that. Okay. Uh, after a while, the Israelites, or the Hebrew people as they were called at that time, uh, began to increase and multiply to uh, numbers of far exceeding the growth rate of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians became quite concerned with this. So uh, the new pharaohs, you know, over a period of a couple hundred years, whatever it might have been, there were a series of, of pharaohs. And the new ones... Uh, knew nothing of Joseph and the beginning because records weren't kept like that uh, about those small details. And therefore he started to be concerned and eventually put the uh, Hebrew people into slavery. Now slavery isn't exactly as we think of slavery in those days. The same was true when uh, we had the Babylonian exile up in the 6th century B.C. It isn't quite the same. They were allowed to have uh, jobs and earn money, and they were allowed to have somewhat of their own um, governing, uh, but they were forced into labor that wasn't always to their liking. Anyways, over a period of time, they began to grumble and gripe. And God heard their grumbling and griping. And we have this whole story of Moses. Moses was one of the Hebrew uh, children born at the time when one of the pharaohs decided that all of the Hebrew boys, male child, under two years, was to be slaughtered. And Moses' mother... Um, very cunningly, you might say, put him in some kind of a uh, basket, and there's a long description of how that all took place, put him in this basket and let him float down the river, which I think was uh, really a strange way of doing things, but uh, nevertheless, we have to go with what we are told. Uh, can't question uh, the reasonableness of that. Uh, Moses was found by the Pharaoh's daughter through the help of uh, Moses' sister who followed along and made sure that uh, he was saved. The Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses because she had no children and raised him as if he were her son. And so he was, ra he was raised in the Egyptian family. Now, whether he knew he was Hebrew all along or not, we have no way of knowing, but the indication is that he did know. All right? And I think that that's reasonable. It would be difficult uh, if Moses and his brother Aaron and sister uh, were 
not aware and did not make their presence known. Anyways, at a given point in time, Moses gets into a fight with, or tries to fight, or break up a fight, you might say, between a couple of Egyptians, and ends up in slaying one of them. Well, they find out about it, and the Pharaoh finds out about it, and so uh, Moses runs off and decides to uh, get out of Dodge, so to speak. Now, we'll get back into this in a minute, but he goes and he goes back to some uh, relatives and becomes a sheep herder. And the Bible says for 40 years. Well, that seems like a real long time, but nevertheless. At the point in time that he is tending sheep, he sees this bush that's burning. And of course, that's somewhat dangerous out in dry land like that, particularly in pasture land. So he's looking at this bush, and he's realizing that even though it's on fire, it is not burning up. It is not being consumed. So that's unusual. So he goes over to take a look at it. And as he approaches, a voice from the bush comes out and says, Moses, Moses. And it's interesting because Moses answers, here I am. And if you go to the book of Samuel, the first book of Samuel, you'll see uh, Eli coming and saying the same thing. And the same phrase is used several times throughout the Old Testament. Here I am. Or, which is, really means, hello, what is it you want? Because he doesn't know that this is God until God says so. Take your shoes off because the ground you are standing on is holy ground. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, that would scare the wits out of anybody, I would think. Okay. But Moses is very curious. So, he does as he's told, and God says Moses is to go back to the Pharaoh. Well, you know, is it the same Pharaoh, or is it not? Forty years, long time. All right. Um, Go back to the Pharaoh and release your people whom I've heard uh, crying and praying and begging me to release them. Now you wonder, first of all, why would God allow the Hebrew people to become slaves in the first place? Remember, part of the covenant was that he was going to protect them. And he certainly did when he brought them to Egypt and gave them the promise, well, he gave them the best land, the land of Goshen in Egypt. But now they are slaves. Why didn't he protect them? He said he was going to. Well, there again, that's part of God's plan. Because what he's doing is getting them ready by wanting them to leave Egypt. If they didn't want to leave, if there wasn't any great need to leave, why would they do it? They were having, you know, not a great time because of the forced labor conditions. But at least they were settled, you know, they had families, 
they had food and so forth and so on. But to get up and follow Moses, who they didn't trust in the first place because he was kind of not a Jew, really, not an Egyptian, really, and of course the, some of the background. But this is part of God's plan. God wanted these people to have a reason to leave because he wanted to bring them out of Egypt and bring them back to the promised land. So, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Moses goes back to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh says, well, why should I do that? Why should I let them go? I don't have any great need to let them go. They're serving a purpose. They're serving my needs. I'm not going to let them go. So Moses goes back to God. You know, there's a relationship being developed here. Uh, Moses goes back to God and says, Pharaoh won't do this. So God sends Moses back with his brother Aaron. You know, Moses put up a big fuss. Oh, I shouldn't be the one to do this. I don't speak very well, and I have other problems, etc. God says, I'll take care of that. I'm putting this in, you know, kind of everyday language, so that we can get on with it and not uh, have to get through all of the details that's in the Bible. But the point I'm making here is that God's plan of salvation is evident in almost every turn that is taken here. Uh, Eventually, after the the plagues, you're all aware of those plagues. Anybody have a problem with the plagues? There's quite an interesting little schedule I have right here. Just happened to have it, of course. The ten plagues, I'm just going to briefly go down these. The first one was turning the river into blood as a sign of God's power. And, of course, they had magicians and so forth there. Uh, And so some of their magicians were able to turn uh, some of the river into blood as well. Uh, now this can be a natural phenomena. You've, you've heard of the red tide that is, you know, even particularly down in the Stockton area. Uh, that is probably what happened. Anyways, it was probably some natural phenomena that God used uh, to uh, show his power. Uh, and does the Pharaoh relent? No, no. So the next thing is frogs. Frogs came up out of the Nile and covered the land. All right. Uh, could this be duplicated by Pharaoh's magicians? No. Uh, it is a natural occurring phenomenon. Yes. Did that help change Pharaoh's mind? Well, a little bit. Okay. The next was gnats. And a little flying gnats. We've all, we've all had them. <laughs> we've all seen them. Well, in this case, 
it says they became like the dust of Egypt, turning into huge swarms of gnats. Could this be duplicated by Pharaoh's magicians? No. It is a natural phenomena. Yes. Did this help Pharaoh change his mind? No. Then came a swarm of flies. Flies invaded every home in Egypt. Uh, and I'm just going to go quickly down here. Uh, next was disease, fatal disease of afflicting all Egyptian livestock, but none of the Israelite animals. Then boils, festering boils broke out on all Egyptian people and animals, but not the Hebrew people. Hail, worst hailstorm ever destroyed, destroying livestock and crops. This did not, this really couldn't, I guess, be avoided uh, by harming the Hebrew people. Locusts, countless locusts devouring the few crops that were left. Then darkness. Anyways, Pharaoh constantly refused. All right. Then Moses goes back to God and says, you know, after all this time, what are we going to do? God says, I'll take care of it. And then he sets up the conditions for this last plague. All right. He says, after this last plague, Pharaoh will relent. And therefore, you and your people, the Hebrew people, have to be on the ready to leave. And this is the condition that sets up the Passover, which is celebrated each year by the Jewish people. This is the death of the firstborn of all Egyptians. Firstborn male of all Egyptians, whether they're slaves, freemen, herders, rich people, makes no difference. And the firstborn of all livestock. Well, you can imagine uh, the hue and cry and so forth. And from that, the people then went to Pharaoh, that is the Egyptian people went to Pharaoh, and begged Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go. Alright. So God sets up this whole plan again of letting them go. But he wants them to remember what has happened now. And this is the origin of the Passover. Alright. He is getting them ready to leave and they are not to worry about anything to be left behind even baking bread they are to take bread that is being prepared on a daily basis uh, with them and not to worry about uh, putting the yeast in it because that is not going to help and it's going to be a sign of God's special intervention here so the timing is not really clear as to how of these things happen. You have a seven-day period uh, where certain things happen on the first day and certain things happen on the last day. Uh, the Jewish people today have sort of combined all of that into one great celebration 
and to them it is a, a joyous celebration. It happens to be at the same time that we celebrate Good Friday and Easter, and of course, Good Friday is the most solemn day in Christianity. And there is a reason for all of that, which I'll try to sort out and get to you in a little while. But nevertheless, the whole idea of the Passover is extremely important and something that the Jewish people, even though they may not be serious uh, followers of uh, Judaism themselves, they do celebrate the Passover. Uh, it is a joyous occasion. And if any of you have been to a Seder, which is their way of referring to the Passover meal uh, that is prepared and served on the evening of the first full moon in springtime. So, the Passover for Jewish people always happens on either late March or early April because they follow the lunar calendar and it does move within a 28-day span. So it can be any time from the 21st of March to the 20-whatever, not quite the 20th of April. Uh, and it just so happens is that Jesus Christ was celebrating the same meal, the Passover meal, with his apostles the night before he was arrested and crucified. All right. And the connection really is that after 2,000 years of God working with the Jewish people through Moses, through Abraham, through David, through the prophets, through the judges, and many other people, they refused to accept Christ when he appeared to them in person. And so, this was again part of God's plan of salvation. God became, or Jesus became the substitute, you might say, for the main ingredient of the Passover, which was the Lamb. And this is where we get Jesus being called the Lamb of God quite often. Jesus then offered himself as the perfect Lamb, the perfect sacrifice, back to the Father in reparation for sin and to release mankind from the final consequences or the fatal consequences of sin. Right. I want to get into that a little, uh, not today, but down the, the road a piece, you might say, in future uh, lessons. So I don't want to go too far into that right now. But there is a direct connection between the timing of Easter and the timing of the Passover. And that happens to be that the Jewish Passover is always celebrated on the evening of the first full moon in springtime. 
Easter is always celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon in springtime. So that is why there's always a connection, and in some years, it coincidentally happens to be on the same day. That is Good Friday and the Passover. The Passover is not always on Friday. It's any day of the week when the full moon is uh, evident and present in springtime. The first full moon. Leading the people with his knowledge, with his background, uh, as an, raised in an Egyptian family, and of course, knowing the Pharaoh uh, on a personal basis and all of that, but also uh, he is leading the Egypt or the Hebrew people out of Egypt as part of God's plan of salvation to bring this nation back to Israel, all right, the promised land. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, Mike's point is, did these ten plagues happen over a short period of time or a long period of time? And we assume, by just reasoning, that there must have been some time in between, because you have a cause and effect, and it would take some time. How much time, we, we have no way of knowing. No, we have no way of knowing. And we have no way of knowing if there was exactly ten, or twelve, or whatever. Uh, because this book was written, you know, nearly a thousand years after the actual event. And so, you know how things get embellished. And so, but it's not so much the exactness of the details, it is the whole idea of what has happened. Yes, yes. Uh, the point is that Bob is making here is that, uh, as it says in there, uh, after these plagues, and particularly after the death of the firstborn, uh, the Egyptian people would do anything to get rid of them. You know, they, they saw that these were people that were causing, for whatever reason, they didn't understand the reason and the purpose, uh, they were causing more problems than they were worth, so let's get rid of them. And Moses, or through God, Moses instructed them, the Hebrews, to ask for clothing and jewelry, etc., um, which would help them later on once they got into the promised land. All right. So, the tide is turned now. The people <laughs> want the Hebrews to leave. Now, let's set that aside for a moment. Can you imagine when the population of any large country decides to migrate or emigrate out uh, of the country? The economic problem that that creates and a number of other problems. Uh, the people who depended on the Hebrews for slave labor, or even hired labor, 
if that's all gone, they have to do it themselves. And they weren't trained for that. So it creates a tremendous problem. And we would have the same problem today if half of our population departed. Sometimes you wish they would, but uh, that's a totally another thing. Anyways. Anyway, so we're talking about the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham to take hold of leadership. Remember, up to this point in time, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people as they were called, had no structure. They had no leadership. They had nothing written down uh, in the way of law or anything else. They lived pretty much by their wits and their tribal customs. They did live together under the idea and the concept and the adoration of the one true God that made heaven and earth and all things. But they didn't really understand the depth of that and what it all meant. We're not talking about stupid people. We're talking about inexperienced people. Inexperienced for lack of any awareness of certain things. All right, so the people have now been released and the Seder or the Passover meal has now become ingrained in their mind and their heart as celebrating this great escape and this release. And it becomes uh, embedded in such a way that it is celebrated on an annual basis. Now, they get out into the desert. They go for a, a few days, and all of a sudden, the Pharaoh and all of his people come together and start realizing what they did. And they begin to realize the economic and the human factor of all of these people leaving their country, leaving them behind to fend for themselves. So what are the farmers going to do? What are the bakers going to do? What are the shopkeepers going to do? What are the household uh, people are going to do without servants, etc., etc.? It's begin to realize. So Pharaoh reverses his position, changes his mind, sends the troops after him. God's saying, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So they get to this Red Sea now. The word Red Sea is sort of a modern-day label. No one knows for sure exactly where this was uh, done. And if you look at the map I gave you, the Red Sea is quite a bit south east of the land of Goshen. And so, and it is fairly wide, and therefore, to have crossed the Red Sea at any major point, it seems to be a little bit uh, unreasonable, to say the least. Many people have said, well, the word Red Sea is a misnomer. It should be Reed Sea. Now, we know that up in the land of Goshen, there are a number of swampy areas, 
because it is part of what is now the uh, Suez Canal. Alright? Suez Canal runs right through that area. And there is uh, little rivers and so forth that go from the Mediterranean Sea uh, down into the Red Sea. And so it was somewhere in there. But nobody knows exactly for sure where it was. Uh, but nevertheless, as the story goes, uh, the Pharaoh's armies are after the Hebrews to make them return. God is protecting the Hebrews. And we have this situation of the column of smoke during the day and a column of fire at night to guide and guard the Hebrew people. And so at a given point in time, the column of smoke goes behind the Hebrew people and covers or, or clouds the issue so that there is a period of time where both sides have to stop and camp for the night. And during that night, God widens or stops the waters from flowing in whatever position or place this is and creates dry land for them, the Hebrew people, to walk across. Again, a major uh, point in the concept of Judaism. In the morning, they go across the dry land and after they are through, Moses then waves his magic wand to the staff and the waters flow back. In the meantime, the Egyptians have tried to cross on the same dry land and the waters that flow back uh, cause them all to drown. Now, everybody says, well, isn't that pretty harsh, God's way of um, dealing with them? Well, you have to remember that the Pharaoh, way back in the early days, or way back when Moses was a young person, uh, the Pharaoh killed all of the little boys uh, under two, you had a number of those kinds of uh, mass killings in the Old Testament. Some of them were done because of God's plan of salvation. And Jesus has told us that anyone who dies for the furtherance of God's plan or because it is something that works in favor of God, then those people who die will be brought into heaven and will be blessed for that purpose. So you have a number of those, and that's the way you have to look at it. There is no justification in modern terms for mass killings of any kind, regardless of who uh, perpetrates them or who they benefit. Uh, but we have to look at it is if it happened in this way, it was for God's purpose and God will honor the people who were unjustly uh, killed. For you. I mean, it's kind of the way it was for... In, in, in many ways, yes. 
Yes. Um, but he picked this group of people for a purpose. But keep in mind that their purpose, particularly once they get back to the promised land as a nation with some structure and with some rules and regulations, that they were to build a model community and reflect God's love through that community out to all the other nations. That was their purpose. They were to be a light to the nations, which is the term that is used um, by several of the prophets, particularly Isaiah in chapter 49. They were to be a light to the other nations. Unfortunately, they felt that they were so chosen because they were so great themselves that they became an exclusive nation to themselves. And they did just the opposite of what they were created for. And that is really the part of the major part of the problem. They misinterpreted God's love and protection, which was the essence of the covenant. There are a lot of questions about this map and the route that the Hebrew people took. Why would they go from the land of Goshen south? Um, the Mount Sinai, of course, as you see, is at almost the furthest point uh, down in the Arabian Peninsula there. Why would they go that far south? We have no way of knowing. All right. Uh, and it says it took them approximately three months to get there. Well, anyways, let's, let's go on. They are now out camping in the desert. Next week we'll talk about the problems that they encountered with a lack of food and water, etc. But today we want to get to another important point, and that is God giving them the Ten Commandments. They have traveled now for two or three months southeast, and they come to Mount Sinai, which also used to be called, called Mount Hebron. So if you see Hebron yeah, or Sinai, it's the same place. And even today, we are not certain of where this particular mountain is, although most people have picked out a given mountain and a certain monastery of St. Catherine is built there on the site, so we can accept that with a little bit of doubt. Okay? But nevertheless, God brings them to a point and then asks Moses to come up on the mountain. And as you've probably read, Moses has gone up and down, up and down. I always said he needed an escalator. Remember, Moses, by this time, he had traveled, or rather he had uh, lived with the Egyptian pharaoh for a number of years. Then he fled 
and he tended sheep for his uh, father-in-law Jethro uh, for 40 years. Then, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, the Hebrew people are led by Moses through the desert for another 40 years. Okay? So, by this time, he's over 100 years old. you got to be concerned about this term 40. 40 in biblical writing and other writings, of course. But 40 in biblical writing is a convenience number. It is not an actual number. And you have not only this, but you have a number of others. Remember, in Noah's time, the rain for 40 days and 40 nights. I think the people down in Louisiana and uh, recently in Idaho think the same thing. You know, uh, They all got the arcs ready. <clears throat> 40 days or 40 years or whatever it is, the term 40 in Jewish writings is an estimate because there were no calendars kept. There was no universal calendar in those days. They didn't, you know, put a little notch on some piece of wood or tree or whatever to indicate uh, the years that have gone by. Yes, they had a lunar moon, but most of their timekeeping was only for major events, huge major events. And just wandering in the desert was certainly not one of them. All right. So you've got to be very careful on that use of the word 40 throughout the Bible. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus goes out after being baptized into the desert for 40 days and doesn't eat or drink, again, the term 40 in there is an estimate. We have no way of knowing because he didn't check off a calendar, you know, from April the 15th to whatever, May, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. There wasn't any calendars, particularly for personal events. The Julian calendar uh, that was issued and followed with Julius Caesar did not happen until the middle of the first century B.C. And it was then revised in the 13th century by Pope Gregory and became the Gregorian calendar. But even that has... Uh, margin of error of up to seven years. Any questions about the root of the Exodus? Alright. We'll get, we'll get into a little more of that uh, in a few minutes here. The Ten Commandments. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on the top of the mountain after Moses has been up there for quite a while. And the Ten Commandments were always referred to as two tablets of stone with the first three commandments on one and the remaining seven on the other. Do you have any idea why? Hmm? 
No, not necessarily. But that's part of it, but not. Yes, the first three deal with God alone. Man's relationship to God. Alright. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, in some parts of the Bible, and in some Protestant Bibles, they have taken the first commandment and split it into two. And then they take the ninth and the tenth commandments and combine them to still come out as ten. Uh, either way, the wording of the ten commandments as listed in the book of Exodus is a little different than the wording listed in the book of Deuteronomy. But one was written many, many years before the other. Uh, and the essence of the wording is still the same. But this was the first structure, this is the first uh, written law for the Jewish people. And it is through this that the Jewish people are then beginning to realize that they have some kind of a calling or a purpose. But it isn't quite understood yet. And with Moses being up in the mountains for 30 days, 40 days, or whatever it is, uh, they begin to wonder, is he ever going to come down? Or what happened to him? Maybe he got uh, swallowed up by beasts of some kind. Uh, they are concerned. And then they start drifting away. They remember how well the Egyptians lived. And maybe it was because the Egyptians had their private gods. Many gods. And they worshipped statues and they worshipped animals and the moon and the stars and the sun, etc., etc. And so maybe that was why the Egyptians did so much better. Uh, and if we, the Hebrew people, think if we did the same thing, maybe we would fare better. So he wants, they want something to worship. Something that they can see. Remember I talked about last year, or last week, um, that their whole concept of God was sort of lamb-based. Everything was something that they could feel and touch and see and so forth and so on. Uh, the whole idea of God and the Spirit just did not enter into their minds. They knew God was a spirit, but as far as having any personal relationship with mankind, that didn't enter their uh, concept or their understanding. So while Moses was up in the mountain there getting the Ten Commandments, these people are concerned, and so they go and they decide they're going to build uh, something that they can worship. So they get Aaron, who is left in charge with Moses up in the mountain. Aaron is left in charge, and they ask Aaron to, to build them uh, something that they can worship. So Aaron collects all the jewelry and the gold, etc., that they can, or they have, and he fashions this molten calf. 
That was one of the animals that the Egyptian people worshipped. Now you got to stop and think. Where did he get enough gold to make this? Obviously, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, uh, didn't have that much gold with them. Um, so here again is a questionable item of where did all of this come from? But we take it that the where and the how is not that important as, as what. The whole idea of the Jewish people becoming restless and wanting something to worship, hoping that their turn of events will get better. So, Aaron falls in line with this thinking and creates this we call the molten calf. And, oh, they're just wild and celebrating this thing with uh, a lot of joy and they uh, dance and have a great merry time. In the meantime, Moses coming down and he sees all of this. God tells him that you better go down there. Your people are getting restless and doing all kinds of things. Um, so as Moses comes down, he sees this revelry and he sees that they're worshiping the molten calf and he takes the Ten Commandments and he throws them at the people. And of course, being stoned, they splinter and are destroyed. There is no theory or explanation of the meaning of that act exactly. Um, and I've often wondered, you know, that must have been a major part of God's plan of salvation, and yet there's virtually no explanation anywhere, and I've never been able to find anyone else that has had any theory on it, so we just have to kind of accept it on face value and let it go. Alright? But Moses is terribly upset with the people, and God is very upset with the people, and as a punishment, he grinds the molten calf back up and forces the people to drink it somehow. Doesn't sound too appetizing. Yeah. Then God said that because of the betrayal, you might say, after bringing them out of Egypt, that all of the people involved in this building, remember, I'm sure that not everybody had a hand in it, just a few leaders, everyone involved in that would never reach the promised land. And that is the essence of why the Hebrew people wandered in the desert for approximately 40 years. As punishment, because God could have wiped them out, but then the Egyptians would have said, aha, see, we told you, that's what was going to happen. No. God doesn't do things that way. He punishes wrongdoers, but hoping that they will repent. But in this case, those people who uh, were involved in the making of this molding calf were never 
allowed to enter the promised land. And by wandering in the desert for 40 years or whatever it was, they eventually would die out. And so it was Joshua and Caleb and the younger people that left Egypt that eventually entered the promised land, uh, however many years later. Yes? Well, but uh, Andrew, you're being realistic. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't always uh, look at the realistic side of things. They're tra- trying to tell a story. You see, you can't take this literally as history. We know the major events are history, but all the details are filled in by people's imagination. Because, as I said, the book of Exodus was written perhaps a thousand years after the actual event. And so there's no way, because records weren't kept, there's no way for people to know exactly what happened. But by word of mouth, the main events were transmitted from generation to the next, but the details were not. And that's understand. But in your way of thinking, what you just said there, that yes, in this large number of people, there would have probably been dissenters, but then there were probably people who were loyal to what Moses wanted to do, but they were probably not in control. You see, these people, being illiterate, uh, had to follow their leaders. And in any large group, you're going to have some strong people will rise to the top, whether they should or not. That's another question. Uh, but they become leaders. And as we saw Monday night, we got <laughs> two of the most questionable people on earth, I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, the whole idea now is to understand that the Jewish people are now in the desert wandering around. Not because they didn't know where the promised land was, but because they were being punished. Now, historians tell us that it is most likely that they camped at one or two places for a number of years in order to grow stock uh, or grow food for their livestock uh, and food, etc. Because the Sinai Peninsula, the Arabian Desert, is an extremely desolate place. And we don't see it being any different 4,000 years ago from what it is today. Uh, but they didn't have airplanes that, you know, could come in and deliver fresh lettuce uh, every day or whatever. I find that uh, these stories are extremely interesting as well as important to the Jewish people and important to Christianity. Uh, you've already seen uh, the carryover of certain ideas and I would suggest that you kind of keep record 
of some of these things that are directly connected between the Old Testament and uh, the New Testament, which we've taken into uh, Christianity and Catholicism. Uh, one being the four sources of the Old Testament, particularly the Torah, and the four Gospels, the main part of the New Testament. Uh, not that they're the same from the same origin, but they're four for the same reason. Yes, sir. Cleansing, yes. Cleansing of the people that were involved in the molten calf incident. Yes. So that they would not go in, into the promised land. He still needed them, in a way, to father more children and to grow. And in the process of banding together in the desert, they became a closer uni- united and closer knit uh, nation. This is where the Hebrew people actually became a nation. Prior to their escape from Egypt, they were not. They were under the domination of the Egyptians. They had no structure. They had no written laws. They had no leadership. Now, under Moses and the Ten Commandments, they have both leadership and structure. And from the Ten Commandments, of course, Moses uh, added many other customs and traditions. One of the customs that is brought out much, much later in the Bible was the forbidding of Hebrew people to consume animal blood. For some nations, for some cultures, uh, blood was mixed in with other food and made into various products. Uh, blood sausage today is still common among some cultures. One of the reasons that Moses forbid the people to consume blood was at that time it was thought by many people that if you consume blood you would become like that animal because blood carries the life of that animal in it. And, of course, this is wrong thinking, but nevertheless, in their primitive way, they felt that blood should not be consumed because you would become like that animal. Now, going into the New Testament, why does Jesus say, unless you drink my blood or eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life in you. It is because Jesus wants us to become like him. So he's using that same idea, even though it was a misunderstanding, the same idea of the ancient Jewish people into Christianity and saying, unless you consume my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you because he wants us to become like him. That, well, what, what you're saying is kind of two different things. 
and you've made a point, Bill. Mike was just saying that the Ten Commandments appear to be uh, common sense, first of all, and things that are not new to humanity. In other words, we are built with knowing right from wrong, and this only sorts it down into ten describable incidents or particles. But the whole idea of the Ten Commandments is the the natural law. Yes. You think that came from the very beginning, though? Yes. Yes. Mankind was built with a natural law within him, uh, knowing right from wrong and all of the incidentals that go with that. This is the first written instruction of its kind, putting them into reality, something that they could see as well as live. Uh, and I think that's very important. Yeah. But so these uh, people who, who were the chosen people before all this time, could they be saved as well? Though? I mean, do you think that God just, they were just excluded because it wasn't, well, Mike's question is the people that lived according to the Ten Commandments, whether it was before or after, uh, will they be saved? Well, the church has always said, those people who didn't know Christ and led a good life in accordance with the laws and the traditions of their society and loved their neighbor, yes, there is the hope that they will be saved. All right, And that goes true even today. For those people who never knew Christ, but that's pretty hard with television and radio, uh, to not to know something about Christ and to refuse to look it up and understand that's part of the problem. Uh, and someone asked me today, uh, if you're not a Catholic, are you going to be saved? Well, anyone who opens his mind and heart and accepts Jesus Christ as Lord, regardless of the degree of detail, regardless of the degree of un their understanding of what that means, if they lead a good life <coughs> under the natural law, the Ten Commandments, then yes, their the capability of being saved is theirs. It is the people who know Christ and refuse to follow him, refuse to follow his laws, who are lost. But it is their own free will that caused that. But before Christ, do you think they still apply? Yes. Yes. Well, does God forgive people like Manson or Jeffrey Dauber? I mean, you say that's imprinted in their hearts, but like psychotics. Do they know right from wrong, or are they forgiven, or, or Well, we, we, we have to go on the good graces of God. Jesus has told us in more than one occasion of the Bible that unless you come through him, you cannot be saved. But there are all kinds of possible exceptions to that. And we have to leave it up to the good graces of God. Uh, someone also asked me uh, this morning, 
if you do not belong to the Catholic Church, can you be saved? And I feel, again, if you are accepting Christ and live according to the teachings of Christ, yes, you can be saved. And I say you can, I don't mean you will. I mean, it's a possibility, but there's all kinds of conditions that go along with that. No one individual on earth can say that person, and you mentioned a couple, uh, is going to go to hell. We can't say that. That's not up to us. All we can say is it doesn't look like he's going to go because of what he's done. But the possibility of a last-minute sincere contrition could change that. Well, yeah, you're talking about people that have medical or mental deficiencies of some kind. Yes, you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's the whole idea of the Pope today, is let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Because to do otherwise, to do condemn people just because they didn't follow these laws, is wrong. That's right. You, we are not the final judgment of anybody. And we have no right to do that. All we can do is say, if you believe in Christ and you follow his teachings, then yes, you have the possibility of being saved. Conversely, just because you're a good Catholic and you go to church every Sunday, that doesn't guarantee it. You got to live it. Right. Father MacDonald used to say uh, that the Bible is only a book of words. It is not until you take it up and live it does it truly become the word of God. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we've reached the end. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. For helping us to broaden our minds and our understanding of your laws, your faith, your teachings, your life, death, and resurrection. Help us then to ponder it, to think about it, to take it seriously and see how it affects us. Help us really then to open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that we might live according to your teachings. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forward, continuing the study of Judaism and how it affects us in, in Christianity. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.